Amen. You may be seated. Praise the Lord, we can sing that truth this morning, right? He gave all so that we could find life in Him. Before we begin our, or continue our series in the book of 1 Thessalonians, I, I want to just say a brief word that uh, Joel and Kimmy Harris are representing South Canyon at the Southern Baptist Convention being held in Anaheim, California. So they will not be here. They're not here today as a result of heading down that way. Um, and then after the convention, they're going to turn it into a vacation. So for the next, for three Sundays, uh, they won't be here. But praise the Lord that we have other gifted musicians who can lead us and who can express their love and joy for the Lord. You can see it on their countenances as they're leading us to sing these truths. And I'm thankful that we can uh, receive that blessing this morning. Before we begin, let me pray and uh, just ask God to lead us as we look at His Word and uh, as a body of believers that God would rally us around His truth. Lord, we come to You this morning because of this great grace that we have been singing of, because not only of Christ our peace, but of Christ our righteousness, Christ who gave Himself to satisfy our debt of sin, and a Christ, a Savior, who can extend His righteousness to sinners. Not only does He atone for us, but He justifies us. This is a, a profoundly, profoundly important truth. And Lord, as we gather to hear Your Word this morning, we understand that this is the means by which you build up your church. It is to reveal yourself to your people through your Son and through the Scriptures so that we might know you, how to relate to you properly, how to also walk with you in humility, before you in holiness. And so, Lord, this morning we've heard the word read. We've heard the word and we've sung the word. We are praying the truths that the Word reveal, and we are about to receive the preaching and teaching of your Word. So prepare our hearts, Lord, whether we came in this morning with an understanding that we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, or whether we were brought here today for the very first time. Some impulse led us into this building and placed us in the midst of this gathering. We pray, Lord, that whether we are prepared or not, that you and your spirit would have reign over the hearts and minds of all who are in this room and all who may hear this at a later time. There is a real temptation that we look at the world around us and what we see and feel is all that we believe. The temporal surpasses the sublime of eternity of the spiritual nature of ourselves created in your image. And we pray, Lord, that today you would deconstruct that. That for a moment, every busy mother, every distracted father, every weary person with aches and pains, everyone who's burdened would find rest. 
would have a moment where they can just hear from their maker. And in that moment, you would quicken hearts, whether it's to salvation or it's to obedience, that your work would be done. And we thank you, Lord, that this is not unique to South Canyon. What, what we're praying for and what we practice every week is a pattern and is, a, is the regular means of grace for your people across the globe. And we thank you, Lord, that we are one in Christ with everyone who has bowed the knee to Jesus, confessed him as their Savior and Lord. And so as brothers and sisters in Christ, we rejoice that our siblings are gathering around this city, yea, even around the world, to worship you today. And with one heart and with one voice, we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified and we as your people would be better servants. Give us the grace to hear, to receive, and to do. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. <clears throat> this morning we're going to look at the first 11 verses. As we're nearing the end of this book, uh, you might already know that we are going to continue on into 2 Thessalonians. So if you're visiting with us this morning and you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, you should be able to find a blue Bible in the chair in front of you, and you're welcome to use that. And to help you out, we have put the page number on the screen so you know where to find the text. And I would encourage you to read along with us because what we do is we open God's Word so you hear the noise of pages ruffling. Uh, You might see the swipes of fingers on screens too. That's okay. But what we do regularly is we open the Scriptures and it is the Scriptures that inform what we say. So anybody that stands in this pulpit, by the grace of God, you are going to hear God's Word being communicated to the church. Not the words of men. We don't spend our weeks pulling headlines from newspapers and telling stories as humorous and as maybe at times as helpful as that may be. We need to hear a word from God. And so this morning, uh, we are continuing our series through this short letter written by Paul to a church he started And then he had to abruptly leave earlier than he anticipated as a result of hostilities in the city against this new religion called Christianity. And so Paul had sent one of his protégés back to the city of Thessalonica, of which the book is named. And he sent Timothy back to instruct these people even more, these new Christians, in what it means to know and follow Jesus. And then Timothy returns to Paul with a report on how the church is doing. They're weathering the storms, but they have many questions, Paul. And one of those questions we saw last week was, what happens to those who die in Christ? Paul, you told us about a resurrection. You told us about eternal life. What happens to Christians who've professed faith and then die? Where do they go? Paul answered that question as we saw in chapter 4 and verses 13 and 18 that God will raise them when Jesus returns and they will be with the Lord. Now, that naturally flows into this question. These Christians are facing persecution for their faith and they are now wondering if that is a result of the Lord's return. Paul, you told us 
the words of Jesus that we see in Matthew 23 and 24, that in the last days, it will be a very, very difficult time to be a Christian because there will be even families turning against one another. And Christians will suffer mightily at the hands of non-Christians. And so this young church, having these truths taught to them by Paul and believing them, are saying to him, is this the time? Is the Lord about to return? And so this morning we find ourselves at a passage where the thought is simple, and it's very clear and straightforward. It is this, prepare yourself for the day of the Lord by embracing the salvation found in Jesus. Now, this is not rocket science to a Christian, to anybody that's been around for a while. What I'm about to share with you from God's Word is things that you know, doubt, already know. But in rehearsing this, the value of rehearsing this is that it recalibrates us. It recalibrates us back to the plans and purposes of God's. Because here's the reality. We all drift. We all, life pressures are a focus and attention. You know, you can be intense on a task for a certain amount of time, and then you just lose the mental capacity to be that focused. And we all slowly drift away. So if this is a reminder for you this morning, I pray that it will bring you back to a renewed passion for your salvation and a renewed purpose for living a life of holiness. We're preparing ourselves, Christians, by understanding our identity as children of light, and we are to live as God has destined us to live. What Paul will say later in faith, hope, love, and obedience. For the non-Christian who may be in our midst, we want to welcome you and we thank you for coming here. You're watching something unusual happen, perhaps, or maybe you've been in church before and this is not new to you. But we are calling you this morning to prepare for the day of the Lord by embracing the salvation found in Jesus. Because the day of the Lord is a day of judgment and salvation. It's salvation for His people who He rescues out of the hand of their enemies, but it's a day of judgment for His enemies. So follow along as I read through the text, and then we'll work our way through it. Beginning in chapter 5 and verse 1 of the book of 1 Thessalonians. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for, the, for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us 
for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. And may he write these truths upon our hearts. There's three movements in this passage. If you're taking notes, I'll try to help you out a little bit this morning so you can follow along and stay awake and connected. The first two verses um, are a response by the apostle to the question from the Thessalonians. When will the day of the Lord come? And then verses 3 through 11 are, are the next big section. And it speaks of the results of the day of the Lord. Broken down in verse 3 by a judgment for unbelievers. And then verses 4 through 11, salvation for Christians. So it's a really simple point that Paul's making. Remember, we need to prepare ourselves for the day of the Lord. How do we prepare ourselves? By embracing the salvation found in Jesus. This has implications for Christians and it has implications for non-Christians. So let's, let's, let's handle the question first. Paul does, verses 1 and 2. This phrase, times and seasons, could be viewed as two separate entities. And in classical Greek, they were. I don't mean to bore you, but we need to do a little bit of homework here. The word time may mean duration, while seasons refer to the character and quality of time. So you think about it like this. We think of time measured as morning, Right? We think of time as measured in afternoon, in evening, and in night, while seasons are groupings of time distinguished by their character and duration. So you think spring and summer and fall and winter. Those are seasons that are filled with time. But what happened is over time, no pun intended, in case you were awake, you got that one. Over time, these two ideas were merged. And so by the time that Paul is writing, we see that times and seasons were combined and they were used even in secular literature to refer to an indefinite time or period in the future. So what does all that mean? Paul is saying, you guys want to know about the times and seasons. You want to know about when the day of the Lord will come, as he says in verse 2. And ironically, you guys already know the answer to that question, Paul says. It's all been covered while the mission team was there in Thessalonica. You, what, so what does he say? You have no need to have anything written to you. You yourselves are fully aware so he's gently stating that they already know the answer to the question they're asking. But he will patiently reinforce what had already been taught. And what is the answer? When will the day of the Lord come? The answer is, we don't know. And that is what Paul had taught because Jesus says, no man knows the day or the hour but the Lord, but God himself. That's a, something that God's even kept from the Son. And so Paul had taught them that, and although they wanted to peek behind the, scene, uh, the, the screen, as it were, he's reinforcing, you won't know when it's coming, 
because it's going to come stealthily like a thief in the night. And therefore, what you need, more important than knowing when the end is coming, is to be prepared for the end and to put in practice what you've been taught. So here's a real important reality for us. We're in the New Testament. The Bible has what's called the Old Testament. Now, don't think of new and old as better, bigger, faster, stronger, and old as tired, worn out, used, not worth much. That's not the way the Bible works. And in fact, throughout the Old Testament, which makes up the vast majority of the Scriptures, the day of the Lord was a recurring theme used by God through His prophets to prepare the church or the Christians and those people who were in the covenant community of Israel to prepare for judgment. So you'll read passages like Joel and Zechariah. You'll read things from Isaiah as we saw and Kalen read us through this morning. Led us through this morning. The day of the Lord is an event that is so cataclysmic that it ends the world. Now we've got movies about that, right? It's usually an asteroid. Could be global warming. It's such pollution. You think of the movie Wally, right? And we can't live on this earth. We've just turned it into a trash heap. Uh, it's man-made, or it's aliens from outer space that are coming back to destroy us, or it's aliens in the sea or in the earth that kind of mushroom out. And so Hollywood's got their version of how it ends. The Scriptures has an entirely different version and a different cause. The cause is the sin of mankind. And what the Old Testament often refers to this day when all things as we know it will end is continued on in the New Testament, where the day of the Lord refers to God's judging action when Christ returns at the end of the age, just as we're seeing here in our text. And here's another reality of this day of the Lord. It's inescapable. God's overwhelming power will be poured out in such a way that no one will escape. So if you were to go back to the book of Isaiah... In chapter 2, and you would read verses 12 through 21, there is this image that is given that that shows that the destruction of the day of the Lord will be so universal that people will hide in caves to escape. And then Revelation chapter 6 adds some more context to that scene as we see people who are vainly crying out, Oh, that my life would be taken, that the mountains would cover me in order to escape from God's wrath. So this image that is used here by Paul that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night is not a new one or unique to him. It's throughout the New Testament. We see it. Jesus uses it in Matthew 24 and in Luke 12. Peter uses it in his second letter. John uses it in Revelation 16. So Jesus said to his disciples to know when the day would come is an impossibility, but... What's not impossible is for my disciples to be prepared for that day. And in his commentary on 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, Gene Green writes this, and I I think this is important before we go much further. Paul is not interested in fueling speculation about the apocalypse. 
He's not interested in hypothesizing about the end of the world or fostering some sort of escapism where we just check out, you know. The teaching about these final events is meant to inform and encourage Christians in their daily life and conduct. We need to clearly think about the end in order to help us to live as true Christians in the present. Now, we've looked at the day of the Lord, verses 1 and 2. Now let's look at what the results of it are. Verse 3 is a pretty powerful and pointed picture. Paul says, people are going to tell you there's no problem. There's peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them. Ladies, don't let this be a subliminal message. We have several pregnant ladies in the room this morning. But as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, it will come upon them suddenly and they will not escape. So Paul does three things in this third verse. He describes the attitude or the outlook of people when the day of the Lord comes. Perhaps these are the very people that have been persecuting the church. And they're saying, hey, if your God is so great, why isn't he stopping us from throwing you in jail, breaking up your assemblies, taking your possessions? Or it could be the reality that in this day and age that Paul was writing, just like in our own day, there was a lot of peace and there was a lot of security. Rome had had really put down a lot of... um, other countries and had established some secure borders, and things in this time in the Roman Empire were really good. You could travel thousands of miles on roads that were paved. You could travel safely without fear of being robbed or killed. And so you're telling me this this God who's angry at all creation this God who's bigger than all the other gods that the Romans and the Greeks and the rest of the world worshipped, you're telling me in this foolish message that you call the gospel that he is angry at our sin and he's going to judge us when all I look around, hey, Christian, look around you, all I see is prosperity and peace. Take a hard look because your message just doesn't wash. The same is true today. Yeah, we've got Russia invading Ukraine. There are battles and skirmishes all over this world, but the reality is that there is a lot more tranquility and prosperity than there is war. I mean, just the fact that there are millions and millions of tons of goods sitting in shipping containers that are transversing the seas right now that we have trade flourishing among the nations. We live at a time where peace and security can be spoken of as confidently as it was during this time in ancient Thessalonica. So my point is that the message of God's judgment sounds really hollow to our ears today. I, I don't believe in this God. I'm not concerned about it. And when I look around, things look pretty good for me. And yet from Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching, we are told that the day of the Lord will come most unexpectedly. Not only would it be sudden, but it would also be absolute, as I said before. It will touch everyone, everywhere. The nature of the day of the Lord is sudden destruction It's as unstoppable as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And the result of the day of the Lord is that no one who is apart from Christ will escape. 
Paul equates it with labor pains. In other words, when the baby comes, it's ready to come, whether that's in a car or in a plane or in a train, a shopping mall, or at work or at home, those labor pains come at an unexpected moment and the mother cannot just simply deny them and ignore them. Likewise, there is no way for any unbeliever to escape this judgment. And so what we see is this growing human agony is going to reach such a feverish pitch that when Christ comes to earth, He will terminate all of this earthly turmoil through His divine judgment. And yet, Paul's message isn't only that this is a bad day for those apart from Christ, it's also a very good day for those in Christ. So what he wants to do isn't tell these people, scratch out some date and time on your calendar, this is the moment. He wants to prepare Christians for life now in the present in light of that coming day. And so as you look at verses 4 through 11, even though the day of the Lord will come at an unexpected time, as we're told in verse 2, the members of the church of Christ will be prepared. Paul writes in verse 4 that Christians are prepared because they're not in darkness. And this is a metaphor that he will use that is kind of lost on us. Darkness in that day, pre-electricity, was a thing to be fearful of. And it wasn't because of boogeyman under the bed. It was because if you're out in the city after hours, after daylight, you are very much a, uh, a victim in the making. You could be robbed. You could be murdered. Bad things happened. I remember my parents when I was coming of age, and they're like, nothing good happens after dark. I'm like, that's not true. There's so much life to be lived after dark. But that's because we live in a day of electricity, and you can go to the mall, and you can go shopping, you can go out for dinner, and you can go watch a movie, and we have all these accoutrements. But in that day, you were in the house with the door bolted and locked when it got dark. And that was for security and protection. There's that element that we kind of lose, but there's also this other side where Paul uses this image of darkness to, to, it's like a lack of enlightenment, a lack of understanding. He will say in Romans 1.21, you know, that their foolish minds were darkened, that there is, apart from Jesus Christ, there is a world that you just can't understand. You don't see it that way. It's impossible for you to see it. Because you are still in darkness. The sin that you were born with and the sin that you have acted upon, and those, they, they've all clouded your understanding of a holy and good God who wants to be in relationship with you and has provided that means through Christ. That's just lost on you. You're in darkness. And it's a sinful pattern that characterizes the life of the non-believer. And once again, what we see here is Paul contrasting Christians and non-Christians. You see, Christians have been liberated from moral darkness, and they've turned away from that sinful life, and now they're living in the light of holiness. Therefore, they are prepared for this day. Instead of judgment, believers have assurance, and therefore they look at the day of the Lord as a day of salvation, not as a day of condemnation. 
Now, how is it that Paul could be so confident that this is true as we read in verse 4? You are not in darkness, brothers. The second time he uses that familial term. For that day to surprise you like a thief. For. In the Greek, that's a, that's, that's a word gar. G-A-R. And in the Greek, it can be translated for this reason. I like the word because better. Here's why we know this is true. Verse 4. Because, verse 5, says what it is. You are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. Paul says your identity, once you come to faith in Christ, you have a whole new identity. It's not of someone who is ignorant of God's plans and purposes, his working and his will. It's that you now know what the Father, who the Father is. You now have a clue about really what's at stake here. And Paul says, this is our situation. You are sons and daughters of God. You've been saved from darkness as the result of hearing and believing the gospel. And yet, there is an element of obligation upon these children of light, as Paul goes on to express in verses 6, 7, and 8. Now, as you prepared, I hope, uh, we give out these sermon cards so that everybody knows where we're going next week. And if you took time to read through this passage this week in preparation for this morning, no doubt, I'm hoping, that you notice that Paul shifts to a first-person plural pronoun. What does that mean? It's been a while for English for some of us. But there's a we or an us that he employs in verses 6 through 8 that he hadn't used before. And this is subtle, so we might have overlooked it, but this is where language is so important because Paul has moved away from talking about the others, they, them, the the non-Christians who are in darkness. And he's moved even away from talking about the Thessalonians in particular, this church. And now he is talking about what we as Christians ought to do, a collective sense All believers ought to be preparing themselves for the day of the Lord. In other words, our identity, our identity as children of the light ought to play itself out in what we do. Who we are is always reflected in what we do. You're a criminal of heart, you're a criminal in action. You're an adulterer in heart, you are an adulterer adulterer in action. You're a thief at heart. You steal. Christians are children of the light. Therefore, what we do and what we're about ought to be things that aren't to be ashamed of doing in the light. Things that reflect holiness and purity and righteousness. Therefore, Paul says we should not sleep. In fact, we should be alert and self-controlled. He's tapping into what he spoke of in chapter 4, verses 13 and 18. Not consumed by the passions of our flesh, but self-controlled. Understanding how sexual morality should be uh, portrayed in our lives. There's a morality that distinguishes the Christian from the non-Christian. And we must be aware of that. Last week, we saw that Paul uses the image of sleep to refer to death. Right here, he's not. He's not referring to sleep as death. He's referring sleep here as those who are ignorant of God's plans and purposes. 
moral indifference about sin. Who cares? Everybody does it. You can't tell me this is wrong. Who are you to judge me? A lack of awareness of what sin really is, is what Paul refers to as sleep here. A lack of self-control with, what's, with one's body is what he refers to as being drunk rather than being sober. However, verse 7 makes it clear that there's this uh, reality that darkness is not something that is... Um, It's something that's prevalent within all human hearts apart from Christ. So Paul says, we are not to live, those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who are ignorant of God's plans and purposes, when do they do that? They do that at night. And those who get drunk, they are drunk at night. But we belong to the day. And since we belong to the day, let us be sober, he says having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Verse 8 is so important because Paul is teaching us that being a child of the light means that we ought to live in the virtues of faith, love, and hope in light of this coming day. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If, if the whole plan of God giving a little peek around the corner to his followers is that we ought to be prepared then by doing the right things, we're never caught unprepared. I mean, how many times as a kid, let's just be honest, mom left and there was fights going on in the house and then when we came home and she caught us right in the middle of it or we were eating something we weren't supposed to or we were watching something we weren't supposed to, you always get caught at the most unexpected times, right? Whether you're parking in a non-parking or a paid parking downtown and everybody else is expired, but you're the one that gets dinged, right? That's just the nature of how that works. But here's the good news. If you are prepared, then guess what? You're prepared. You've got nothing to be ashamed of. You're doing what God has called you to do. And this is where we come to this image of armament, of the Christian putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. And I hope you saw that as Kalen read us through Isaiah fifty nine seventeen, because God himself is compared to a soldier in that passage. And I think that's what Paul is drawing on here in First Thessalonians. God put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. And did you notice that these are defensive protections. There's no weapon spoken of here. And therefore, practicing faith, practicing hope, practicing love are virtues that protect us from losing self-control, from going back into sin, and for being unprepared for the Lord's return. Then we get to the conclusion of this where Paul really focuses in on the contrast between Those in Christ, the children of light, and those who are still in darkness. Look at verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul contrasts two groups of people. One will suffer divine wrath, while the other will be saved from it. And don't miss the word destined. Both are destined for this. 
This is a hard truth, but it is nonetheless a true truth. God has destined some people for judgment because they have rejected the gospel. At the same time, God has destined some people for salvation simply because they believed the gospel. We cannot help but see the clear reference to election here. And God in His divine purposes is fulfilling things so that He will be glorified. And this is not new. We saw it in chapter 1 and verse 4. We saw it in chapter 4 and verse 7. And there's a little heads up. We're going to see it in 2 Thessalonians too. So Paul's communicating this truth. Whether it was new for the, uh, for the Thessalonians or not, I don't know. But it's clear they had been well taught that they were going to suffer for their faith. Chapter 3 and verse 3, Paul said they're destined for this. But that doesn't include the idea of being subject to God's wrath. So here's a truth, Christian, that we need to hold on to. And it's a hard one for us to because in this culture in which we live, here in the beautiful Black Hills of South Dakota, in the land of freedom, religious liberty, we have no appreciation for the fact that our brothers and sisters right now today are suffering in hard places around the world. And that suffering can become so present and so powerful that maybe it will even cause some of them to question whether or not God truly has saved them. And this isn't a sign of His wrath upon them. And so pastorally speaking, Paul is very concerned that these Christians understand, yes, you will suffer for following me, but never Never connect that to the ultimate day of wrath. My wrath has been poured out completely upon Jesus. He emptied that bitter cup, every last drop, so that you and I, who don't deserve it, remember, our election is rooted in God's purposes and plans, not our merit. There's nothing we could have ever done to earn His favor. And therefore, the fact that God is pouring out grace upon us shows that His wrath has been satisfied by one who is righteous. Paul wants these brothers and sisters to understand the heart of God. They expected Christ's return, and their suffering had become so intense that they were persuaded that the day of the Lord had arrived. And Paul had to correct that. No, the day had not come. And no, what you are enduring is not the result of God's wrath upon you. It is the result of living in a sin-cursed world while serving Jesus. And so, church, we need to hear this word because when the day comes for us, to stand in line with all of our brothers and sisters throughout the ages who have suffered for the cause of Christ, let us not think it strange. And let us not once question God's goodness, His providence, His mercy. Let us embrace our discipleship. And let us follow our Savior through the valley of the shadow of death even. As we continue, Paul wants Christians to know that they are destined to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, God's wrath comes upon those who rebel against Him and His way, who reject His Son, 
and we cannot merit his favor. It's solely his grace. And so in verse 10, Paul makes it clear that this salvation is from God's wrath, and it's the result of Jesus' work on the cross. He died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, and this time when he uses the word asleep, he is referring to believers who are dead, not to those who are still in spiritual darkness. He says this is our confidence. Whether we are alive when he returns or whether we are dead, we might live with him. Now what's interesting is Paul only mentions the cross of Christ a few times in his letters to the Thessalonians. But this is the only place where the purpose of Christ's death is explained. We sang it so well this morning. I can't emphasize it enough. Jesus died for sinners. Because God loves sinners. And He died so that He might redeem for Himself a people that will live with Him forever. Can there be any clear explanation of why Jesus did what He did? He died for us so that we might live with Him. Now we see Paul answering the question, Will Christians experience destruction? Because Jesus is our true Savior, the answer is no. We are not destined for wrath. We have been destined for salvation. And yet, we will suffer greatly at the hands of those who hate God and reject His gospel. But whether we are dead or alive, when Jesus returns, we will live with Him. Now friend, I want to thank you again for being here this morning. And I want to encourage you that if you haven't repented of your sins, if you haven't really wrestled with who you are and what motivates and drives you, if you haven't found in Christ a friend of sinner, a balm for your soul, the very person who can fill you and make you whole, then we simply want to encourage you to be intentional and thoughtful as you weigh this reality of will I trust Jesus or will I reject Him, don't be flippant. Don't so quickly assume that Christianity is foolishness and it's stupidity and it's so marginalized and it's so rule-oriented, it's so unhelpful. I've met Christians before. They're some of the most unhappiest people I've ever known. They're, they're just like the rest of us, and yet they're self-righteous. These things are all true. We're all here as confession that they are true, right? We're here because we need the gospel. We know that we're hypocrites. We know that we're prone to wander. But let me say, if you just dismiss all this without a thought, you ought to be very careful. You ought to be convinced in your heart and mind that Jesus is not Lord of all. That Jesus did not rise from the dead. That the New Testament teaching is absolutely wrong. That ought to be a convictional truth, not a convenient one for you. If you're going to reject Christ in all fairness, in all honesty, do your work first. So that when that day comes, you're not surprised. If you make the decision to reject Christ without considering the facts, the Scriptures tell us that there's a day coming when Christ will return to the earth and He will exercise His full universal authority against 
all who opposed him. And he will send them to a place of eternal destruction. And this is such a terrifying truth that even we as Christians shrink away from it. So friend, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, I implore you, take the time to explore what the, Christ, what the Scriptures teach before you make up your mind. Now Christian, can I give you a gentle word of warning as well? Yes, it's true that because of Christ taking the wrath that was meant for us upon Himself, that we will never face God's judgment. It's also true that no matter our level of preparedness, Christ will in no way cast us out. But here's where it gets a little heavy. Because we live in a day right now, and it's painfully obvious to us that many Christians are living practically as though Christ never rose from the dead. Our worldview, our ambitions, our practices are the same as the non-believers around us. So if you're here as a non-believer, don't think this is all one way. I mean, we, we, we need to reckon with these truths. We are brothers in Christ. We are children of the day, not of night or darkness. So let us, church, not be short-sighted or faithless. The passage is calling us to practice our faith here and now while we wait for the day of our salvation. And I want to be a part of a church that is living in such a way that we can give an account with joy that we can present to our coming and conquering King gifts that reflect our love and devotion to Him, that our ambition is to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So let no one leave this gathering today ignorant of the fact that God has created us for fellowship with Him. And that while our sin has broken that fellowship, and while that sin has incurred God's wrath, we can embrace the salvation that He promises through Jesus. There is a real, genuine offer of Christ. He's not playing games, putting His hand out, and just as you're ready to reach it, He pulls it back. That's not God. That's people. But God's not like us. Let us wrestle with the truth that if Jesus is not Lord of all, then He has no right to determine the purposes of our lives. So whether we are a Christian or a non-Christian, here this morning we are making decisions that will have eternal consequences. I realize that this is a weighty word. But friend, let me just say, brothers and sisters in Christ, let me just say how thankful we ought to be that the Scriptures instruct us in these ways. They show us the end of these two paths. One will lead to a place of eternal separation from our Creator. A removal of every blessing. A removal of all the mercy. The rain, as we were reminded last night, falls on the just and the unjust alike. But we will then be moved into a place of unending sorrow, pain, and darkness. And yet the hope and the promise is that there is another path that leads to life everlasting where you will be in the presence of God, protected and preserved by Him forever. And this is why Paul ends in verse 11, as he did at the end of chapter 4. Christians, we are to hear these truths, and we are instructed, we are told, we are literally, imperatives are used here. 
in the words to comfort one another, to encourage one another, and to build each other up with these truths. We are to help one another to know God better and to love Him more. And remember, Paul is speaking to the church as a whole. This isn't a pastor's job. This is the job of every member in your life groups, in your life classes, in your day-to-day interactions with one another in the body. Speak the truth in love for the building up of the saints. This explains why we make such a big deal of the gospel here at South Canyon and the cross. Because we know our hearts. We know we're prone to forget that God has chosen us for His purposes. And we forget what God has saved us from and what God has saved us to. And further, the pressures of life are so demanding that our suffering blinds us to this truth. And therefore, we need to comfort one another and to build each other up with the truth that our suffering may last a lifetime, but it will not last forever. Nor is it a sign of God's judgment on us. Oh, how we need these truths to be deeply embedded in our hearts so that we occupy ourselves not with the day and the hour, but with the call to holiness, which in turn prepares us for the return of our Savior. May each and every person prepare themselves for the day of the Lord by embracing the salvation found in Christ. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us through your word. We thank you that it is a pointed but hopeful truth that Christ died for sinners so that we might live with him. I pray that you would soften hearts, whether that means that the end result is salvation for those who are afar from you, or whether that means that some Christian here today would hear your word and it would call them back to living with a moral purity in preparation for that coming day. We pray and we are confident that your word has the power to produce good in us. And so we submit ourselves to you this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you would come quickly and that you would find us looking, awake, alert, and obedient in that day. In Jesus' name, amen.